Especially if this is your first, second time, really glad you're here. I uh, hope you feel welcome uh, no matter what you believe, uh, no matter what your life looks like. What we are doing every week this semester is walking through a section of the Gospel of John. And we're examining John's claim that he makes in chapter 20. That he has chosen these things that he was an eyewitness of to write them down so that you would believe in Jesus' name and have life. And that's what we're examining, is how does Jesus bring life? And in John 11, this is, the, this is the turning point of the gospel. And here's what I want you to think about. John 11 is like, um, it's like a scene in any good action movie. Okay? Um, I watched Wonder Woman this summer, probably like many of you did. It was actually uh, surprisingly good, I thought. And uh, here's what you have, right? Here is Wonder Woman, Diana, superhero, uh, this... Amazon woman goddess. Uh, And her mission is to save people from evil and death that is in the form of this god, Ares. Okay? I'm not going to spoil anything. And so she leaves her home on this island. She goes with this American soldier to go back and to fight in World War II to basically dethrone the evil uh, military regime of Germany that is a death machine that has Ares behind it. And so for the first half of the movie, she keeps asking Chris Pine's character, the American soldier, when are you going to take me to the battle? When are you going to bring me there? And he keeps ignoring it because he thinks they need to slip behind the lines. And then in the kind of big climactic scene, which uh, I've watched multiple times with uh, Clark because he loves it, um, they're in this ditch on the front lines of this battlefield where there's, where there's a stalemate. And she looks around and she sees violence, death, everything that marks these things that she's supposed to be fighting against. And she says, I've got to go. And Chris says, you can't. Like, you, you can't save everybody. And she says, I am. And, this, and the music begins and she, and she walks up this ladder. And she walks onto the field and here's what you see. There she is. Looking the enemy straight in the face. Death and violence. The protagonist meets the antagonist, right? The the hero meets the enemy and she stares it face to face. And she charges straight into it. That is what we're about to read. This is the climactic point in John's gospel. Because if Jesus is life itself, then the enemy is death. And whether whether you've faced death yet in college or not, it's coming. And death is the enemy. And you're going to see Jesus, the one who brings life, come up to the tomb of his friend, Lazarus, stare into the eyes of death, the one who takes life away, and charge straight into it and says, bring it on. This is the event. What does God think of death? What does he do with it? Let me, uh, let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for... Giving us this account of uh, Jesus interacting with death. Uh, Most of us try to avoid thinking about death. We try to act like it it just doesn't exist. Uh, But it's real. Uh, And help us to face it uh, through the lens of of Jesus who is resurrection and life. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to do things a little different. It is, someone said, wow, 44 verses tonight. uh, we're going to just take it in sections. So uh, we're just going to do, let's read verses 1 through 6. 
Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. All right. So what does Jesus think about the enemy death? Here's what we're going to see. Jesus waits. Jesus weeps. Jesus rages. And then Jesus wins. Okay. This is Jesus waits. Chapter 11 begins by introducing you to these friends of Jesus by name, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And Lazarus has fallen seriously ill. He's so ill that Mary and Martha send these messengers to go find Jesus. And they report to Jesus the serious condition that Lazarus is in. And look at verse 5 and 6. John wants you to hear this. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So when he hears about Lazarus being ill, he stays two days longer. That's bizarre. I want you to think about this, this tension. Lazarus is literally on, he, he's on death's doorstep. The sisters send a message to Jesus. Why? Because they know Jesus loves Lazarus. And they know Jesus has the power to heal Lazarus. He's already been healing diseases left and right. And then because Jesus loves the sisters and Lazarus, he waits. He delays. That doesn't make sense. Certainly the sisters expected, and you and I would expect, here's what we would think it would read. If Jesus loved Lazarus, and he hears that Lazarus is deathly ill, he immediately leaves and says, we've got to get there as fast as we can. But he doesn't. And things get worse, and Lazarus dies. I want you to feel that tension. That because Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he let them be disappointed. He let things get worse. And you will see that they are disappointed. Like when Mary and Martha are going to approach Jesus later on, they say, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They're disappointed in Jesus. He didn't show up. They needed him to show, and he didn't. Why does Jesus let things get worse? Uh, I, I once saw on uh, Conan O'Brien an interview with uh, the comedian Louis C.K., who is hilarious. I can't always recommend his stuff, but he is funny. Um, you can watch this one, though. And in this one, he was talking about uh, the time in his life when he adopted the 70-pound dog. And so, right, he was at the vet. He had taken the 70-pound dog to the vet, and the vet had kind of given him the speech about taking care of uh, dogs. And he said this, look, here's what you need to know. Your dog can never eat chocolate. If he does, he will die. But if, you ha- if he happens to eat chocolate, what you've got to do as quickly as possible, get hydrogen peroxide into his mouth so that he'll vomit. Got it. So sure enough, six months later, Louis C.K., he comes home from work, and he discovers that his 70-pound dog has eaten a giant bar of Polish dark chocolate. So Louis C.K. freaks out, realizes he does not have hydrogen peroxide in his house. So, puts a leash on his dog. He lives in the middle of Manhattan and starts running to a drugstore with this dog behind him. He runs in, he buys hydrogen peroxide, and then he thinks, now I've got to get this dog to drink this. How do you get a dog to drink hydrogen peroxide? 
So he like poured it on his snout. And his, he, so he start he puts him in a headlock. He's trying to pour it on him. The dog is growling and biting. He, he gets him on the ground. You've got to imagine Louis C.K. He has him in this alligator hold trying to pour it down his snout. The whole time the, draw, the dog is trying to bite him and growl, he starts punching him in the face to make him open his mouth so that he can pour this liquid in him. And at that point, he looks up, and there are probably a hundred people on the street staring at him, punching this dog, trying to put, put something in his mouth, and he screams out, I'm trying to save his life. And he said that his dog ended up dead vomiting and he was okay. But he said what was so funny about that moment is he realized from the dog's point of view and from everybody else's point of view, he was trying to kill his dog. (laughs) But he knew he was trying to save his life. And look, that's kind of what's going on here. To Mary and Martha's limited view and to our reasoning, what Jesus is doing by waiting it appears he's trying to destroy them. He's trying to ruin them. But he's trying to save them. He's loving them through it. They wanted Jesus to just fix Lazarus' disease problem. But Jesus knows what they need is a resurrection. Jesus wanted something deeper. And here's my question. Can your God disappoint you? Because some of you in this room, you have either overtly left Jesus or you've suddenly given up on him because he disappointed you. You begged him for things. There was painful circumstances in your life that are real and you needed them to stop and they haven't. And you say, what's the point? And I would ask you first to consider this, that if your God can never disappoint you, Could it not be that you have a God that's fashioned in your own image? That he's just got to fit your idea of life. And wouldn't it be rational? I'm not saying this makes it easy. But that if God is infinite and eternal and has a bigger perspective than you, couldn't it be that he knows things that you need that you don't? A real God has to be able to disappoint you. He has to. And so look at Jesus. It appears he's trying to destroy them. And he's trying to save them. And he loves them enough to wait. And to let it get worse. Do you have a paradigm for following Jesus and the pain actually gets worse? Some of you know this. You say, Jesus, I've struggled with depression for a long time. And I've begged you to take it away. And I've taken medicine and it's just getting worse. I begged you, Jesus, for my parents not to split. And it got worse. My dad never came back. Jesus, I came to you for friends and I'm more lonely than ever in college. It seems that if you love me, those things would have been fixed. Or I'm still struggling with this sin and I want it to go away and it seems to get worse. Why? I don't know exactly why, but I'm telling you, if this is Jesus, if Jesus is the real God, he is, somehow he's working for it. Somehow he's wanting to heal something deeper in you. And so he's letting it get worse. And Jesus is saying, you can trust me. You can trust him and his goodness. 
he is enough. And somehow your helplessness has to bring you to him, not just for him to fix your problems, but for actually him and his character and his love to be enough. Jesus wants you to trust him, not just what he can do for you, because that's a real relationship. So Jesus actually waits. But then what else does he do? Verse, verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near, near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And when Mary came to Jesus, and what, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping... Sorry, the type is small. Uh, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, "Could could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. What else does Jesus do? He weeps. This really is incredible. Mary, one of Lazarus' sisters, comes out to Jesus. She falls at his feet. She says, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then did you hear this? Jesus sees her weeping. He looks around and sees all the grief that has filled this place. And it moves him so much that he bursts into tears. God himself begins weeping. Why? Because Jesus shows us what the heart of God is like. Because he's God himself. This is God. Emmanuel, which means God with us. So close to Mary that when she weeps, he weeps. He literally shares in her sorrow. God himself enters this broken and, broken and sorrow-filled world and he weeps with us. And as the crowds watch Jesus weep, they say, see how he loved him. How do you know that Jesus loves you even if things are getting worse? Even if the stench of decay and death are creeping at your doorstep? Look at his tears. That's how you know. One of my favorite passages in the Chronicles of Narnia comes from the uh, magician's nephew, Diggory. He's the main character. Uh, He is coming to the land of Narnia. But back home, his mother is very ill. Actually, on her deathbed. And so everything that he's doing in Narnia, he still can't get out of his mind his mom that he loves. 
And finally, the great lion, Aslan, right, who has this amazing power and uh, creates things and, and, and is majestic, he comes across him. And almost without thinking, he blurts out to Aslan, he says uncontrollably, he says, please, please, won't you cure my mother? This is one of my favorite parts. The story says that Diggory looked up and he saw something that surprised him more than anything else in his whole life. The great and fierce lion, wonder of wonders, his head was bent down and a great big shining tear stood in the lion's eyes. They were so big compared to Diggory's that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. And that is a picture of Jesus. How can you know amidst the waiting, amidst the suffering, amidst the pain, and it even getting worse, and death itself, that he loves you? Look at Jesus. He cries with you and for you. He is grieved by the pain and suffering in this world. Psalm 56 says he counts your, your tossing, your sorrow, and he keeps your tears in a bottle. That's how close he holds them. So when you come to Jesus with your sorrow, here's the truth. He is more sorry and grieved over what you're going through than you are. He is. He has to be. Because his love is purer than ours. He loves you that much. And I know this. I know some of you in this room, you've been abused. And it's awful. And it's evil. You've experienced death and decay in some awful and personal ways. And you need to weep over it. And you need to know that Jesus weeps over it with you. And Jesus is sadder and grieves more over the things that have been done to you than even you do. He knows what it's like to be used and abused. He shares in your sorrow. Some of you grew up with one, in a one-parent home because it was a broken family. And man, everything has been hard in your life. And it hurts. And you need to weep over that. And you need to know that your tears mix with Jesus' tears. And he's more sad. And he's more grieved about how hard it's been. Jesus knows what it's like to grow up in a one-parent home. His dad died at an early age. And he weeps with you. And some of you can look back at the decay, not just that's happened to you, but you've inflicted on other people by your own sin, your addictions, your sin patterns, and it's wreaked havoc. And you need to weep over it. And you need to let Jesus' tears mix with your tears and realize he's more grieved about the damage that's been done to you and by you than you are. That's my question. Where do you need to weep tonight? What decay in your life do you need to let Jesus weep with you about? He will do it. And you'll find he loves you and is more sorry than you are. That's who God is. But then he also does something else. He rages. Verse 33, verse 38. This is really interesting. And I think it's really beautiful to see it. Twice it says Jesus was deeply moved. All right. This is a word that's really hard to translate from Greek into English. Anytime I start creating the Greek, I read it from somebody else, okay? The word, the word means agitated and angered, technically, okay? It's a word that's used to describe the noise 
that a horse makes when it's angry and starts to snort. Okay? That's the image of basically a war horse that's getting ready to battle. You know, it does this thing and starts snorting in adrenaline and anger. That's what it's saying. So imagine the scene. Jesus looks around. He sees Mary weeping. And he starts getting agitated. He starts getting angry. Why? Because he sees death and what it's doing to the world that he loves. It's the enemy. And then he walks to Lazarus' tomb, the gravesite itself, the mark of death, and Jesus quakes with rage. And he bellows out in anger. He probably makes some snorting sound because he's ready to do battle. Wow, because death is the enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 calls death the enemy. Death is the grandest picture of this world being broken and messed up and full of sorrow. Everything that God made ruined and broken by sin and death. And so when Jesus looks at the way that death has decayed his world and has destroyed the people that he loves, he's ready to do battle. And he snorts with rage. And he says, bring it on. One of my best friends, he tells a story about when he... Uh, his middle brother was about eight or nine years older than he was. And so when he was like in elementary school, uh, his brother got into some uh, rough crowds and, uh, when he was in high school and got into a pattern of just kind of addiction and drugs. And one night, his brother didn't come home. And so they all sat around, obviously worried, crying. Well, his dad, who, pretty intimidating dude actually, uh, gets a call from somebody who gives him a tip that his, da- that his son is basically trapped at the drug dealer's house. So my friend said he watched his dad get very solemn, pick up a baseball bat, get into his car, drive to uh, the part of the neighborhood that no one ever drives into, calmly walks up to the door, knocks on the door, they open, there's a man standing with a baseball bat. And says, I'm coming to get my son. They move out of the way. He walks in. He gets his son. And he says, we're going home. That is what God is like. He looks at the way that death and decay and sin is destroying this world. And yes, he weeps. But he's also angry. And he says, how dare you? And I'm going to wage war with you. And I'm going to get you back. And like a, it's literally like a father who would almost look at a pimp who has enslaved his daughter. Jesus looks at the decay and destruction that death has wrought and says, I am mad. And I'm coming after you. And you need to know this. You need to know not just that Jesus weeps, but that he's angry at what sin does. You who, and it's probably a, it is a minority in this room. I can tell by looking at it. But you who have experienced racism on this campus, you need to know Jesus doesn't just weep. He's enraged by it. He says, I hate what's been done to you. And I'm going to go to battle. And I'm going to defeat it. Because it's that harmful. Jesus looks at the way that sin has ravaged you. And the things that that sin, the way it's left deep wounds in you. And he says, I'm going to go to battle. I smell the death. 
Jesus looks how death itself has ravaged you in sorrow, even if it was your grandmother or a friend. He knows it's not right. And he says, death, I hate you. I hate what you do to my people. And he goes to battle. And so Jesus waits, and he weeps, and he rages. But we'll finish here. Pick up in verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, uh, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen and strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The last thing Jesus does with death is he wins. He wins the battle. I love this. You've got to imagine Jesus with tears stained on his face. Agitation and anger as he's standing at the tomb. And he cries out, actually verse 33, it's he roars. Lazarus come out. And immediately, immediately, death is rolled back. Life comes into Lazarus and a guy who has been ravaged by the enemy death for four days comes walking out fully alive. Because this is what you need to know, especially if you're waiting, waiting suffering, waiting in pain. You don't just need to know, yes, he's good. You don't need to know that he weeps with you and that he's angry. You need to know that he can and will do something about it. And he does. He cries, he rages, but he also resurrects. Right? Jesus told Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then he shows it. When he speaks, his word has such power that it rolls back death in a man. And a corpse comes alive and he walks out of the tomb. And all of a sudden the stink of death uh, moves away and there's Lazarus alive. And all of a sudden the place that used to be this, this just weeping, it becomes a place of joy and celebration. Pa- uh, Dwight Moody, uh, who's a pretty famous evangelist, when he was a young pastor, he said he got called on to, uh, to preach his first funeral. And so he panicked. Because he didn't know what to say. So he started flipping through the Gospels trying to find some sermon that Jesus did at a funeral. He said he could never find one. Because every time Jesus showed up at a funeral, he changed it into a resurrection party. Every time. And then he realized, I think that's the point. That Jesus breaks into places of death and weeping and sorrow. And he changes it into a resurrection party and celebration. That's who he is. He really has that power. Jesus' resurrection life. Jesus can restore decaying relationships that seem to be dead. Jesus can bring hope and restoration amidst despair and depression. He can do it. Jesus can heal deep wounds of abuse and addiction. He has that power. Wherever you smell death and decay around you, bring it to Jesus. You may have to wait. It might seem like things are getting worse. But eventually, I'm telling you, the decay 
will turn into a place of celebration. That's what Jesus does. How can he do that? Well, we didn't keep reading. If you keep reading, which you could do tonight, in John 11, the next section, right after this, here's what, it's, here's what it probably says. The plot to kill Jesus. And by verse 53, here's what you're told. That many of the religious leaders, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it says, from that day forth, they plan to kill Jesus. And this, in the Gospel of John, is the last great miracle that Jesus does before he's going to be crucified. And here's what, Je- here's what John is saying. This is what John said. This is awesome. Jesus bringing resurrection to Lazarus meant Jesus had to die. Jesus unbinding Lazarus' hands and arms meant that Jesus was going to be bound hands and arms to a cross. Jesus bringing Lazarus out of the tomb ensured that Jesus was going to the tomb to be buried. The way Jesus is going to defeat death is he's going to take it on himself. You see, if Jesus weeps and rages over the brokenness of the world, if he's doing battle with sin and death, at some point you have to say, oh no, I'm part of the problem. I contribute to the death and brokenness of this world. I know I do. But Jesus says, everyone who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. How can that be? Because Jesus will take your place. He will take the penalty that is due our sin by going to a cross. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus will die in your place and he'll swallow it up forever. So that you don't have to. But I don't know why Jesus has not taken away the pain in your life. I don't know why you're still waiting and suffering. Jesus weeps. Jesus rages. But ultimately, here's what you've got to see. Jesus in your place. Look at the cross. Look at the tomb. When they watched Jesus and they watched his tears, they said, see how he loves him. You can look at Jesus laying down his life for you and say, see how he loves me. It's incredible. Whatever's going on in your life, I don't know why it is, but it can't be. It can't be because Jesus has quit loving you. It can't be that. He went to the cross to take the only thing that can really kill you. Which is the the payment of our sin. He took ultimate death. And what that means is this. That if you've trusted Christ, if you've let his death be your death. If he has taken the penalty of your sin. Then you can know this. Even when death comes to your door. And one day it will. It won't separate you from the love of Christ. It can't. Because it separated Jesus. And that's why, if you read the New Testament, it hardly ever describes Christians as dying. You know what it says? They went to sleep. They fell asleep. Just like Jesus said here. Why? Because Jesus transforms death. Because when Jesus brings resurrection to Lazarus, it's just a little foretaste, an appetizer. Of what's to come one day. Because if Jesus has removed the sting of death, the penalty, then what it means is that when we die, we fall asleep. Because Jesus will return one day. 
And when he returns in his resurrected body, all those connected to him, their bodies will come out of the grave. And their bodies will have no more decay and no more sorrow and no more sin. And Jesus will look at you by name, just like he does Lazarus, and he'll say, come out. Come out. And you will come out new, restored, fully healed. No more abuse. No more sin. No more death. And you will be with life itself, Jesus, forever. Winston Churchill, um, he arranged his own funeral, actually. And at the end of the service, this is what Churchill planned. That this unusual event that when he died, I guess I went out. I'm going to speak up. When they would say the benediction, a bugler was going to play taps, right? Which is always, always the, the sign that the day is over. So at the end of his funeral, taps started playing. But then he signed that there would be a long pause, and what the bugler would then play was Reveille, which is the sign that the morning has started. He wanted everybody to know that though his life had ended, it's going to start again. This is how Churchill was communicating to Christians that though we hear good night when we die, the resurrection means good morning's coming. And it's just like we've fallen asleep. And the waiting and the pain is hard and living in a broken world stinks. But on that day, when you come out of the grave and you see Jesus smile and you feel his embrace and everything is healed and the eternal party begins, I promise you on that day, I promise you, you will say it was worth it. And I would have done everything just the way that Jesus did it. The depression was worth it. The, somehow we'll say the abuse was worth it, though that doesn't make sense. And all the pain and all the sin, it was worth it. Because I'm here and it's all healed. Jesus is resurrection and life. This is good news. Don't you wish it were true, even if you don't believe it? To know we have a God who weeps over the brokenness of this world, who is angry about it, and who has done something to heal it. By giving his own life. Believe it. It's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're resurrection and life. Because we, when we catch a scent of ourself, there's just so much death and so much sorrow. And so we do turn our eyes off ourselves and believe that you are resurrection and you are life and heal us. In your son's name I pray. Amen. When I stand, sing one more.